You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Teamsters Joint Council 56 and the United Steelworkers District 11. (coughs) Teamsters Joint Council 56 and our nine local unions represent 30,000 workers, retirees, and their families in western Missouri, Kansas, and Nebraska. We are proud to support the Heartland Labor Forum and their commitment to give working families a voice in the greater Kansas City community. And United Steelworkers District 11, representing 35,000 members in the Midwest, protecting workers' rights, and organizing the unorganized. We support union-made products. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, Ellen Cassidy was a founder of 9 to 5, the working women's organization from the 1970s that became a union and was immortalized in the movie with Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and Lily Tomlin. We'll ask Ellen about her new memoir on tonight's show. Then, the United Auto Workers are having an historic first, a one-worker, one-vote election for top officers. As votes are currently being counted, we'll speak with Intercept investigative reporter Daniel Voguslau about what's next and what it could mean for organized labor. In the news, Biden and the railroad workers and... IBEW 1464 settles the Wabtec strike. Our feature at the end of the show is Safety First with Mary Ario. She'll talk about the risk of methylene chloride, caterpillar workers' grizzly foundry death, and child labor in the most dangerous workplaces. And now for the news. This is the news from our side, December 1st, 2022. Thousands of rail workers who voted for Biden in 2020 are thinking that he has thrown them under the train by asking Congress to impose a contract settlement that the biggest rail unions have voted down. Once again, 
workers in the air and rail transportation unions have received a pointed lesson in how anti-worker the Railway Labor Act is when their right to strike is almost always stripped from them by congressional prohibition. A signal maintainer in Chicago named Rhonda Ewing told the New York Times, quote, they should let the guys work it out themselves. We know it's holiday time, which is why it's the perfect time to raise our voices. If Biden gets involved, he takes away our leverage, unquote. The rail unions have been negotiating with the big carriers since 2020. When they reached impasse, Biden appointed mediators to try to resolve the outstanding issues, which were primarily over sick leave and time off. The mediators failed to address the issue. The carriers have reduced staffing by as much as 30% over the past few years, and the people who run and maintain our trades are overworked, pissed off, and burnt out. Many get only one day off a month. They can't plan their lives, see their kids, or even get time off to go to the doctor when, they're, when they are sick without fear of discipline. Biden asked Congress to send them back to work by opposing the rejected contract, an act which would make the rail corporations very happy. These same companies are bubbling over with high profits, by the way, and could certainly afford to improve working conditions. Despite outrage from many rail workers at Biden's call for Congress to outlaw a strike, yesterday the House voted to do so 290 to 137. They also passed a bill altering the contract to add seven sick days, which is about half of what the unions are demanding. That measure could help avert a wildcat strikes by outraged workers and prevent less turn less or cause less turnover as workers leave unbearable conditions. The Senate took up the legislation this afternoon. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer vowed that they won't leave without passing both bills, the one to send the workers back to work and the one to provide the sick leave. But they only passed the forced work bill on a vote of 80 to 15. But the sick leave bill failed because it needed 60 votes and only had 52 yeas and 43 noes. It needed 60 votes to avoid a filibuster. Voting with the Democrats, in the six, six Republicans who, were, who voted with the Democrats were surprisingly Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, as well as Lindsey Graham. There was only one Democrat who voted against it, and that was Joe Manchin. Here's Bernie Sanders on the Senate floor yesterday supporting the bill to give workers seven days of sick leave. One rail worker was penalized by the railroads for spending the day in the hospital with his son who was having breathing issues. Another worker couldn't take his pregnant wife to the doctor because it could have resulted in disciplinary action for him. Tragically, we witnessed the death of a locomotive engineer was forced to skip his doctor's appointment after experiencing unusual symptoms only to suffer a heart attack and die in an engine room weeks later. And here is what one rail worker recently said, I quote, I am tired of being tired all day every day and having every one of my co-workers being physically sick from sleep deprivation 
most of my co-workers can't stay awake anymore during a 12-hour trip, end of quote. That's one real worker. Mr. President, there is absolutely no reason why these workers should have to deal with these conditions in the richest country in the history of the world. IBEW Local 1464 has settled their strike against Wabtec. Union President Mike Spohr said his members went back to work just before Thanksgiving. They got some of what they wanted, but not their main goal of a gradual elimination of the two-tier wage system that had been imposed on workers when the company was owned by GE and having financial troubles. GE had promised to restore full wages for all once their situation improved, but then Wabtec bought the plant and reneged on GE's promise. Spore said the members, who had no strike benefits, voted to return to work after the company offered an additional year of the contract with a 3% raise for all. They also agreed to no retaliation against strikers and to pay insurance for the time of the strike. The workers were worried about their job security and will have at least four years of it with this contract, said Spore. He added that the company was concerned that its other plants would demand more if they were to give in to the Kansas City workers' demands, so they offered a fourth year rather than wage parity, and the workers voted two to one to return to work. Spore was very grateful for all the support and solidarity the local got during the strike. Next Thursday, December 8th at 10 a.m., KC Tenants will launch a campaign to ban source of income discrimination in Kansas City by the end of this year. At the launch, the tenant union leaders will share experiences with source of income or SOI discrimination and detail the ordinance they have drafted. It will be introduced to City Council the same day by Councilwoman Melissa Robinson. SOI discrimination refers to the refusal of property owners or managing agents to rent housing to a tenant on the basis of their source of income. This discrimination often targets tenants who receive income from housing assistance programs like Section 8 vouchers or direct cash payments like Supplemental Security Income, SSI, and Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI. Nearly 7,000 tenants in Kansas City use Section 8 vouchers, otherwise known as Housing Choice Vouchers, and many more relied on, rely on tipped and gig work, disability benefits, alimony, foster care subsidies, or child support to pay rent. 60% of voucher holders in Missouri are black, and 43% are female-headed households with children. Many other cities and states, including St. Louis, have already banned SOI discrimination. That's the news from our side. The news tonight was read by uh, Stephen Hill, Ariana Blockman, and I'm Judy Ansel. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five Welcome to Heartland Labor Forum. This is Rebecca Markham-Parker, and I'm speaking with Ellen Cassidy, author of Working 9 to 5, A Woman's Movement, A Labor Union, and the Iconic Movie. 
We've seen huge shifts in the workplace, especially for women, and we have Ellen and her colleagues to thank for this. So the conditions of the early 1970s were perfect for your movement. More women were entering the workforce, especially with degrees, and yet they weren't moving ahead as their male colleagues were. So what changes did you see that demonstrated the time was right for a movement? 50 years ago, I was 22 years old. I was a clerk typist at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and 10 of us got together and started talking about our jobs together. And really, you know, you get any 10 women together and that's kind of enough. And we we talked about low pay. We talked about unequal pay. We talked about training men to be our supervisors. We talked about having to do favors, all kinds of favors for our bosses. We talked about respect. Um, one woman said, they call us girls until the day we retire without pension. And because of the civil rights movement and the women's movement, there was a, a something was starting to change in the offices of America. You know, in the 1970s, millions and millions of women entered the workforce who hadn't been in the workforce before. And it was because it was an economic turning point where all the economy changed to the point where one salary was not enough to support a family anymore. And then there was the cultural aspect that women wanted to work. But because of the women's movement and the civil rights movement, we didn't just want a job, we wanted a good job. And so that started, we've, we really felt, the 10 of us felt that we had our finger on the pulse of something really important that a sleeping giant was starting to awaken. So what was the impetus for many to join, even though there were a lot of women at that time who ended up joining your movement that weren't necessarily a part of the feminist movement? I think that's one of the most important things about our movement. We, uh, when we started out, we made a point of going out to lunch with lots and lots of women. Sometimes I went to lunch three times a day. And women would come and they'd sit down in some little cafeteria in downtown Boston. And before they even sat down, they would say, I just want you to know I am not a feminist. But I think women are not being treated fairly, and they should be. We should be. Women should be treated equally. And that was good enough. You know, it didn't matter to us whether you use that label feminist. I think the, the women's movement was much more than what was stereotyped in the media as the, you know, the most activist women represented part of that movement, but not all of what was going on. Really, the ideas of the women's movement, the feminist movement had really seeped into every corner of American society and really, really affected people. Whether or not they read those books or went on those marches, most people didn't. But things were really changing. And it was really a moment when people were had, were fed up. For example, in, in the 1950s, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had designated one day of the year as National Secretary's Day. It was the, a Wednesday in April. And that was the day when bosses were supposed to give a bouquet of roses or a nice lunch to the secretary to, in thanks for a year of hard work. Well, we thought, wait a minute, a bouquet of roses, a lunch? We want our rights and respect 365 days a year. So we kind of took over this so-called holiday. And our slogan was raises, not roses. 
And we started these bad boss contests where we would invite people to send in nominations of the worst thing they'd ever been asked to do by a boss. And nominations poured in. So the first year, the first prize went to the boss who had asked his secretary to sew up a hole in his pants while he was wearing them. And then we heard from a boss who had fired his secretary for bringing him a corned beef sandwich on white bread instead of rye. And then there was the boss who uh, a suspicious package arrived in the mail and he took one look at it and turned it over and said to his secretary, this might be a bomb. You open it. So there were just these outrageous things that that bosses were doing. And what we would do is show up on our lunch hour with a posse of women, TV cameras rolling, and these bosses would come to the door. And some of them were pretty good natured about it. Some were not. Um, But it was covered in the newspaper and on TV. And it just really changed the culture in the office. And let me say that because of our movement, countless bosses started getting their own coffee. When you had that initial training, that summer training that you and your group decided that you would attend, what was the most difficult part of that summer training? And what was the easiest? And did you have your eye on a national movement at that time? When we started out, we thought big. We had big, big dreams. We wanted to change the whole workforce, change the office culture, make sure that all women were being treated fairly, organize 20 million office workers into unions. And those things did not all come true, although we won a lot. And it all did begin when our group thought, wait a minute, we know how to put out a newsletter, but that's about it. We don't know what to do. And we heard about this organizer training school called the Midwest Academy that was just starting in Chicago. And we put our pennies together and sent me to Chicago for the summer to learn how to organize. And it was a real life changer for me. We learned the the three principles of organizing, that people have to win things. People have to, your organization has to actually make a difference for people. It can't just be a place to complain. We learned that our organizing had to teach the lesson that it's by joining together that people win what they win. And also, I guess the third principle that we were taught was that whatever you do has to alter the relations of power. You don't just want your members to get that promotion or while everything stays in place and the whole system remains the way it was. No, you want things to change. So we wrote up a bill of rights for women office workers with demands for job posting and career ladders and um, training and uh, job descriptions so that you, and you know, when bosses were forced to write down, you know, must sew up the pants, the hole in the pants, they didn't put that in the job description. And so that, that moves things forward. Um, And just writing those things down, just getting together to write those things down made a big difference. And then we publicized it all over town. In my book, I talk about how when I went to that training school, I think I was probably the worst organizer in the group. You know, it was so hard and I didn't expect it to be hard. And now that I think about it, I I could have predicted that. Um, For example, when I was growing up, I was afraid to make phone calls. I was afraid to call the movie theater to find out what time the movie started. I was shy. And but, you know, paradoxically, I think that shyness probably helped me because it helped me understand how other people would come to the organization, the nine to five organization. Some were bold and loud and had no problem standing up and talking to a crowd and haranguing people. But most 
really, you know, their heart would start to pound when it was time to go around the room and say your name. So um, that empathy that I had, I think really helped me. And the organizing that nine to five did was very personal. And we really paid attention to every individual. And that's something else I talk about in working nine to five that, you know, we created roles for all different kinds of people and any movement depends on a huge range of people and can't just be about the boldest and the, the, the most fearless. We really, you know, made room for people who were scared and tried really hard and succeeded in figuring out things that even the most timid people could do. I don't know if you come right out in the book or not and talk about possibly being timid, but I really picked up on that as someone who is timid too. I like to tell people I'm a reformed introvert. So I definitely hear that. Definitely hear that. What were some of the surprises after you returned from that training and you really started organizing? Yeah. So I quit my job as a clerk typist at Harvard and we got a little office, tiny little office at the YWCA. And uh, that's when we started going out on all the lunches. At first, we had thought, well, all we need to do is get a group of people together and then we'll know, we'll figure out what to do. But at the organizer training school, we were taught, nope, don't do that. Figure out what you want to do and then recruit people to help you do it. Um, so that was a surprise for me was to sort of turn turn that upside down. And then I think we expected that, first of all, that uh, certain types of people would be most interested in joining our organization. We were completely wrong. We thought that people who are just bored on their jobs and didn't care about them would be most likely to want to change the workplace. But in fact, it was the people who really, really cared about their jobs and really respected their own skills and were frustrated not to be able to use them. Those were the heart of our organization. We thought people would probably be willing to just stand up at their desks and charge into their boss's office and make demands. And that turned out not to be true, alas, because people were scared and they were right to be. It was a very authoritarian culture. You could not stand up at your desk in the middle of one of those typing pools in a big bank or insurance company without your supervisor seeing it. And uh, when we handed out leaflets outside those big banks, there would be supervisors standing inside the revolving doors, just ready to snatch those leaflets out of people's hands. So we had to figure out what would people be willing to do? And one thing we figured out was that people would be willing to take on someone else's boss. So they weren't willing to march into their own boss's office, but they could march into a government agency and make demands, or they could uh, show up in one of those posses outside an outrageous boss and, uh, and not be afraid because their boss wasn't there and they weren't going to lose their job. So it was things like that, that we, that really helped us get women moving. And that attracted so many other people. And through nine to five, which eventually went national, we succeeded in, we sort of created a formula for how to use the, the techniques of community organizing to get people organized at the workplace. Eventually we started a union called Local 925 and later District 925, which was a nationwide a really feisty woman-led union with the Service Employees International Union. We organized thousands of women. We brought many, many women into the labor movement who wouldn't have been there before. Because when we got started, women office workers and unions were pretty far apart. 
And unions really didn't understand what we were talking about at first when we said, here's this unorganized, massive group of workers, talk to them and they will respond. And then when we went to talk to women, they thought unions, unions are for blue collar workers, not for us. But we did succeed in bringing people together. And uh, in the 80s, when we were doing most of our union organizing, a lot of unions were having trouble with employers fighting back and ferociously opposing the whole idea of having a union. We were no exception to that. And the employers really did succeed in crushing a lot of organizing that we were trying to do. But even so, changes were made. And today, a lot of the issues that used to be thought of as individual matters became matters of policy, corporate policy, union policy, government policy. So today, pregnancy discrimination is against the law. Sexual harassment is against the law. The wage gap got smaller. Managerial jobs opened up to college-educated women. And we don't have the help-wanted male and help-wanted female ads in the newspapers anymore the way we did in the early 70s. We didn't win it all. And in fact, it can be harder today to be a working person in today's economy than it was 50 years ago. People are working two and three jobs to put food on the table. And there's computerized monitoring and a relentless pace of work. But what's so exciting is that that sleeping giant is starting to wake up again. And we're seeing a surge of labor organizing, more support for unions than in two generations, and baristas and tech workers and warehouse workers and grad students are organizing. We're hearing new voices and seeing new tactics. So it really reminds me, today's moment really reminds me of those early years in nine to five when women office workers started looking around at each other and saying, you know, we feel united as women and it's time for us to stand up and do something about it. This is Rebecca Markham Parker, and we are speaking with Ellen Cassidy, author of Working 9 to 5. So the movement, you mentioned so many great things. And one of the things that was so exciting about your movement is that it brought so many different cultures together. I'm glad you mentioned bringing different cultures together because that was one of our proudest accomplishments. When we started out in Boston in 1973, it was a largely white workplace workforce Um, And uh, it was even worse in the office workforce. Very, very few people of color in positions of of, um, management or even in the workforce at all in the office during the day. Now, at night, it was people of color who were cleaning those offices. But during the day, very few people of color. So we targeted cities to expand to. And we, we went to Baltimore and Atlanta, Cleveland and Milwaukee. Uh, places where there was a diverse workforce. And we made sure that our leaders, our members, our staff reflected that diversity. And we really joined arms and linked arms and moved forward together. And that was one of our great uh, things that we did. I'm very proud of that achievement. It didn't just happen. It required some real conscious effort. I want to talk about the 9 to 5 movie because I think during the 1970s, we were really arguing, we were debating, were women being discriminated against? Did women deserve higher positions? Was office work a respectable profession or were office workers 
you know, the butt of jokes. Were office workers destined to just be ditzes or office wives, or did we really have skills? But then in the late 70s, Jane Fonda, the actor, came to us and said she wanted to make a movie about the concerns of office workers. And we were, of course, thrilled. She brought her team to meet with our members, and they popped a question that we had never thought to ask, which was, have you ever fantasized about doing in your boss? And there was a moment of stunned silence, and then the room just exploded because it turned out everybody had. There was a woman who talked about wanting to grind up her boss in the coffee grinder. And there was a woman who wanted to swivel her boss around in the swivel chair and swivel him out the window. And all these these fantasies went right into the script. And the Hollywood movie, 9 to 5, 1980, was a huge hit. And office workers had never seen ourselves up on the big screen. And when we did, the atmosphere was just electric. People would stand up in their seats and cheer and yell and It was so great. And after that, we had won the debate. It was a comedy, but it really proved its point. It really drove home the point that office workers knew what we were doing. We knew how to run the office. Uh, Bosses were ridiculous. And it was time to consolidate our power. Um, And that's when we started our union. And I think a lot of changes happened because Jane Fonda and her people really knew how to how to further a movement. So our organization inspired the nine to five movie, but the movie really gave our movement a huge boost. I was in one of those audiences in 1980 and it was, it was like nothing I had ever seen before. You know, people were standing up and shouting and I hadn't seen that a lot in movie theaters. It was, <laughs> it was really pretty exciting. And it spurned a lot of good conversations at home with my family. But, you know, today's organizing, we're seeing all these these exciting new ideas like the, the sip-ins at Starbucks and the barbecues at Amazon and people you know, will always think up the right tactics for their time. I hope that when people read my book, they don't think, oh, let me let me underline those those sentences and do exactly what she did. It's not a question of that. You know, learn from the past, learn from history, but expect to find your own path the way we did. We felt our way forward. We didn't know what we were doing, but we we sort of I use this this metaphor of being like a sailboat, sort of sensing the wind rather than thinking of yourself as a motorboat, just like setting a straight course and just go for it. So this was Rebecca Markham Parker, and we spoke with Ellen Cassidy, author of Working 9 to 5, A Woman's Movement, A Labor Union, and the iconic movie. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Really a pleasure to talk with you. Tune in on the first Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. for Next Step Forward, a program highlighting millennials in the KC Metro that are using their talents, businesses, and activism to educate and uplift their communities. Join us for fresh insights, candid conversations, and interviews that will make you think. If you want to learn, laugh, and be empowered, this is the show for you. Join me, Jasmine Jones, every first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. right here on KKFI. Thanks for listening to KKFI. Be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM. And thanks for over 33 years of support. 
Joining us by Zoom is Daniel Boguslaw from The Intercept, investigative reporter. Uh, and we're going to talk about the UAW vote that is in progress. I'm not sure that we've got the official results yet, although we do have some unofficial results. We're going to talk about that, what that may mean for the UAW uh, in particular, and what it can mean for the labor movement generally. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, Tina. Thanks for having me. So it looks like we've got the unofficial results back from the UAW. Um, have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I believe um, it's looking like the uh, reformist slate is pulling ahead in, I believe it's District 1. We're still waiting to see uh, some of the other results come in, but it was very low turnout, it looks like, from the initial numbers. Um, I think I saw somewhere around 10% of ballots returned, but, you know, this is a really, uh, historic election. It, it, it pits a sort of old guard of calcified union leadership, uh, who are tied to a a number of officials who who are now, uh, in prison for corruption against a much, uh, a a more radical, uh, reformist slate uh, of people who really want to see, um, the union revitalized, who want to see a return of union militancy in, in the UAW. Uh, and, it, and it comes on the heels of, of a massive strike in the UC system and uh, of, of UAW um, graduate student workers. So it's a real potential turning point. A couple of years ago, or I guess last year now, we saw uh, a similar situation play out with the Teamsters, um, there, there had been, you know, a, a near half century uh, dynasty of the Hoffa family, first Jimmy Hoffa, then his son, and a reformist slate under the banner of TDU came in, installed Sean O'Brien, a militant labor union uh, leader from Boston uh, at the helm and, and have really kind of set up a new era for, for that major union. So reformers are trying to do the same thing now with the UAW. And so... Uh, for those who aren't familiar in our audience, there was a reform movement in the UAW. And actually, to be fair, there have been uh, reform-minded or more radical and more militant uh, UAW uh, elements in the union for, for as long as the union's been around. But I think that the last real big push for uh, reform in the UAW was in the early 90s. What separates what's going on now? from that earlier movement? And why do you think that there's been a success? I know that there was a push for one member, one vote in an effort to make things uh, more democratic. 
What do you think separates this new movement from from the, that former effort? Well, I think a couple things. I think for one, um, <clears throat> excuse me, th this comes on the heels of you know the prosecution of, of former labor leaders for corruption, for embezzling union funds, buying you know a million dollar lake house. Um, but with those convictions and, and investigations has come a the, the dissent of the the federal government really I mean there there's a a, a court appointed uh, monitor not just for the sort of day-to-day -day activities of the UAW but also for the elections and part of that change to one member one vote instead of having um, delegates was precipitated by by this sort of federal oversight so I think on one hand you just have a a, a unique kind of um, historical situation, right, where, where, where this is coming on the heels of this um, kind of cleaning of house. I also think if you look at the contracts that were negotiated between workers at the big three, auto manufacturers, and, 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 and management, you know, these were deals that that were not extremely favorable to workers. And in fact, in many instances, and in many analyses of those negotiations, you, you had sort of labor uh, leadership back channeling with with management or, or communicating with management in a way that that many said did not adequately reflect the wants, needs and, and militancy of the rank and file. So I think the other piece of the context that separates it is a kind of ongoing um, decline in in rank and file power, a feeling perhaps of dis disenfranchisement um, of rank and file and, and another contract negotiation um, looming next year and a, and a desire to make sure that, um, you know, workers have have leaders in place who are willing to fight in a really militant way for them and maximize the impact of the union resources, which are comprised of, of workers' dues. And so do you think that, you know, it's been a little mom, I have to, so just in, in all fairness and to, uh, let everybody in our audience know I am also an auto worker. I work at one of the big three auto manufacturing plants and have been for the past 23 years and have supported uh, reform movements and have been members uh, and I have been a member of, of the various reform movements over the years. And I am no longer, but however, uh, I do support reform in the UAW if it means a if it means a return to the militancy of the past or, or perhaps a, a new militancy. Um, Although in speaking to you know fellow auto workers on the assembly line, just rank and file auto workers, the things that they got very excited about was the one member one vote. Uh, less excited about the the candidates who are running, uh, and very much sure. looking forward to a contract negotiation that is going to be more favorable to workers because we see with uh, you know inflation and uh, sort of the recession is that you know we're working more and more have fewer days off and having to work uh, more often uh, in order to in order to, to make ends meet. And so we're hoping for um, a real push for a, a greater a greater share of the pie. And so on that point, I want to discuss sort of if you can, if you if you can speak to it, the individual candidates and their their programs or or their lack of program or their vision or the lack of vision uh, in terms of uh, the candidacy for the uh, the International Executive Board leadership and moving into these negotiations. So I know that uh, Sean Fain was the was the, was the presidential uh, candidate 
for the International UAW. He was a member of Members United um, and is seen as a, as a reformer. There were others. There was Brian Keller as well, who's also reform-minded. Will Lehman, uh, I think, who is from WSWS. If you could talk maybe just a bit about those 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 candidates and in, in, in their programs and what that what those mean or don't mean. Uh, sure. Part. Yeah, I, I think I think I'm not super qualified to speak on their their specifics. I mean, the story I wrote was really more about uh, uh, sitting leadership. But I, I think what I will say to your point that you raised, and I think again, there's a helpful corollary maybe with the TDU reformist slate, um, the Teamsters uh, uh, candidates who came in and, and ousted the Hoffa dynasty, is that even when you are trying to run reformists, like you still need some level of seniority. You still need uh, people who've been in the union for a long time to, to have the basis uh, of legitimacy to say, you know, I understand how the union works. I've been around the block. Um, but I think with that comes, you know, the fact that like in any political system, those people still are going to have right connections to, to have risen to the, the place where they're at. You know, they're going to have been fought battle scarred from, from the fights that, that, they fought to try to become reformers and to reach that kind of middle ground where you're not in direct leadership, but, but you have some power in the union. I think, you know, it, it limits the, the, the pure um, militancy and, and, and perhaps the purity that I think some rank and file would like to see. I know during the, the Teamsters election, you know, there was kind of an alliance struck between Sean O'Brien from the, from the Boston local. And I think his name is Zimmer, Zimmerman, I think, who was from a, a Southern local. And, you know, I, I remember talking to some folks in the movement who were saying, you know, this is kind of a, a shaky alliance and it's kind of blending two different strains of the old guard. And there's maybe some fair critiques of that. But I think, um, you know, that's why politics is a, is a dirty game, whether it's in Congress or or in any democratic system. Uh, you you have to make deals. Uh, that's that's what democracy is is unfortunately about until the workers you know seize the means of production it, it, you, you gotta uh you gotta have those uh connections so i think um uh, my assumption and again i i don't feel totally qualified to speak on the intricacies of uh different leaders but i think um you know that, that fact that you know nobody's perfect and to get the old guard out sometimes you have to make compromises with you know all sorts could give certain people pause uh however you know, the, the current situation is just, you know, is so rife with, with problems. I mean, these, these people have these deep ties to, to people who are in prison now. Um, and so I think the idea is kind of like, let's get a clean slate. Let's get people who do not have that level of uh, commitment to a um, solidified network of, of corruption and prioritizing union leaders' interests over workers. Yeah. And so do you think that, um, and I know, again, I know that maybe you, like you said, that you weren't necessarily qualified to speak on the, the intricate and particular uh, programs that the individual uh, candidates, uh, I was, you know, and, and I'm not going to discuss how I voted, but I'm going to say like, I was, I was terribly inspired by uh, um, the, the, the program uh, such as it exists of, of Will Lehman uh, and of the, the more, radical side of building, you know, rank and file interfactory committees to, uh, you know, start conversations amongst rank and file employees and, and members, excuse me. And then, because I think that in my own estimation, in my own experience, 
where we've ever had power is where we've been able to build conversations amongst rank and file employees or rank and file members, excuse me, you know, on the assembly lines inside the factories and then between factories. And I'm curious if you see that that's going to be any part of the program of, of, of Sean Fane of Members United. Um, will they, do you think that there's any pressure from, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, will standing in the results, I think it was 6% or something like that. So it's not completely insignificant. Do you think that there will be any, any move to incorporate some of those more radical elements or no? Yeah, I mean, I think that like even just the democratization of voting is a is a is a move in that direction, and I think I think that it, that's that's really what what reform has to be all about. I mean, the the article I wrote about um, union leadership effectively concealing the size uh, of of the strike fund, you know, points exactly to, to, to this need where, you know, you have leadership and financial advisors making decisions about what is really uh, workers, workers' money. I mean, it's workers' dues paid into this union um, and that money is paid to protect their interests. And so um, when that money is, is being invested in private equity funds, like uh, my piece showed when that, you know, money is, is getting locked up in, in, into long-term investments, which can't be easily cashed out in the event of a strike. Um, you know, I think that breeds resentment. And I think the solution to that is, is exactly what you're describing is, is like a really bottom-up uh, approach that, that lets workers speak exactly to their concerns, gives them power to have not just rely on union leadership, but actually have uh, ties in their workplace and in, in other workplaces in a more micro scale. Um, so I think, uh, again, like you mentioned concerns, I, I think a lot of, or some of those concerns are definitely valid. Um, but I think hopefully this is the first step towards, towards uh, addressing those concerns and cleaning house. Um, and so on, on that, uh, do you have any predictions or any hopes or any, I mean, you, you've done, you've done well to investigate the UAW and the corruption that's been a part of uh, our history for a while. And then it's sort of come to a head, you know, with the federal investigations. Do you have any hope or any predictions for, for the, the, uh, in upcoming, uh, the upcoming negotiations and a possible strike with the UAW? I know that we just got, uh, you know, it's, it's now, in the, the in the news about the uh, the the railway situation uh, where there's a 25% increase in wages that looks like it's on the on the table. Uh, there are some unions that are still holding out for uh, more pay days off, and then there may be some like Congress going back in the session to approve a, a few more, maybe not the entire 15 uh, days that are being asked for. But with that, in in that context, in in the context of the of the other strike that you're mentioning at UFC, do you see that there's going to be a strike in the UAW? And do you, do you have any? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I think that if you look at, you know, what happened with the rails, with, with the rail negotiations, you basically had, from my angle, you basically had union leadership selling out rank and file. You had, you had a, a, bad deal cooked up by an emergency board convened by the Biden administration. Uh, pretty simple demands the workers said were, were pretty well compensated. You know, some of these conductors are making six-figure salaries. Um, the issue really is not pay. The issue is safety and sick time. And, you know, the, the administration, the rail companies, and, and some leadership 
tried to sell this as, look, we're, we're getting a boost. This is not, uh, we're, we're not getting nothing out of this contract. Um, but again, due to the democratic process, rank and file uh, rejected that deal and said, you know, this is, this is not going to fly. We can't work 16 hour shifts with one person on a speeding uh, uh, mass of metal. You know, this is not, right. this is not safe for us. This is not safe for people who live on the lines. It's not safe for other workers. And, you know, it was really rank and file muscle. And of course, if one um, union rejects the deal and decides to strike, you know, the other unions are going to res- respect that, that strike. And so even if, if one, um, union is able to democratically throw it out, which which several were were able to. Uh, it has this rippling effect, and so I think um, even though <clears throat> workers are getting sold out from all sides, whether it's by members of Congress who are going to force their hand on this deal, uh, whether it's from union leadership who really failed to mobilize in the years leading up to this moment, I think that it, it was positive to see at least that the democratic process at least showed a path, a potential path for workers exercising their their rights. Um, and in terms of the uh, UAW contract negotiations, um, you know, I think there's momentum building. I think there is, for the first time in, in my lifetime, there's a sense that unions might not just be in a defensive crouch, slowly getting picked off and shrunk and beaten down. You know, you, you look at the failure of, of, of Hoffa to um, build out effective expansion campaigns to grow union power. You know, you look at and you compare that to, you know, what's going on with the ILWU, you know, one of the most powerful American unions, which has effectively stopped expanding and stopped flexing their muscle. I mean, they, they effectively control the entire West Coast import export system, um, but their leadership is calcified and, and unwilling to act on the historical militancy, which they're very fond of putting out in press releases, but very unfond of acting on. So I think that there are bright points in the labor movement. There are lodestars for thinking about um, what militancy in the 21st century looks like. And I think that it should, the reformists make it a serious dent in, in the administrative caucus, the incumbent caucus, then it gives it would make a strike more likely and and and, and with that probably a, a better contract more likely as well. And I think that that's just about all the time that we have today. And thank you uh, again. If anyone wants to link to your uh, your article in some of your investigative work, Daniel, where where could they go? Uh, they can go to the intercept.com or just type in Daniel Boguslaw. I'm pretty sure I'm the only only guy with that name. Thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. All right, thanks a bunch. Bye-bye. Now working in this mill is dirty and dangerous and I'm taking risks anyway. But when I have the time and the proper equipment, I can do my job safely each day. Everybody tells me that they're stickers for safety. I'm not here to say that they lie. I'm saying we just come to work here. Hello, this is Mary Ario for Safety First. First, methylene chloride, an unreasonable risk to some workers, EPA says, from www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com for November 30th. The Environmental Protection Agency will take action to identify and apply measures that will manage these risks, according to a final risk determination published November 10th. In 2019, the EPA under the Trump administration proposed a ban on methylene chloride that excluded commercial use. 
In a Federal Register notice, EPA states that, as a whole chemical substance, methylene chloride, which has contributed to the deaths of multiple workers performing bathtub refinishing, presents unreasonable risk of injury to human health under 52 of the 53 conditions of use studied, including adhesive and caulk removal and aerosol and non-aerosol degreasing and cleaning. Methylene chloride is among the first 10 chemicals under evaluation for potential health and environmental risks under the updated Toxic Substances Control Act. A corresponding action revisits the assumption that personal protective equipment is always provided and worn properly by workers when making risk determinations. Possible agency regulatory options include prohibitions or requirements that limit the manufacturer, processing, distribution and commerce, commercial use or disposal as applicable. Next, Caterpillar Workers Grizzly Foundry Death Blamed on Training and Work Conditions from TheGuardian.com for November 15th. Workers say conditions at the Caterpillar facility near Peoria, Illinois haven't changed since Stephen Durkees was incinerated in a pot of molten iron last June. Now workers at the plant are blaming lack of training, poor safety protections, and grueling working conditions for his death and are threatening to strike action at the world's largest construction equipment manufacturer. Durkee's death in June was the subject of a report issued by the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, earlier in November. The report determined that if required safety guards or fall protection had been installed, the 39-year-old employee's ninth day on the job might not have been his last. Durkee's was working as a melt deck operator and fell into an 11-foot deep melter while trying to obtain a sample. OSHA said workers at Caterpillar Foundry were, were routinely exposed to unprotected fall hazards and has proposed a fine of $145,000. The decision does not go far enough for Jessica Souter, Durkee's fiance. My children are left without their father. I am left without my fiance, my partner, my best friend, all because they didn't want to take better safety precautions for that type of work. A current employee at the foundry explained in detail the working conditions and lack of safety protections that contributed to Durkee's death. There were no guardrails, no harness procedures, and nothing to ensure you wouldn't fall into the massive holes filled with iron. Workers at the foundry are represented by the United Auto Workers, and the employee claimed that workers are now being asked to train their replacements in anticipation of a possible strike in March 2023 when the current union contract expires. Finally, child labor in the most dangerous workplaces from the Confined Space blog at jordanbarab.com slash confined space for November 16th. School-aged children working all night and getting injured in some of the most hazardous workplaces in the country. Workplaces that are owned by companies whose goals are to cut costs to the bone and pay higher dividends to their owners. If you were a student of history, you might guess I'm describing something out of a Charles Dickens novel, or maybe Upton Sinclair's 1906 novel, The Jungle. But you would be wrong. On November 9th, the Labor Department filed an injunction against Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., PSSI, for illegally employing 31 children between the ages of 13 and 17 in at least three meatpacking plants where PSSI is contracted to clean and sanitize. The school children worked on overnight shifts and several suffered chemical burns from the corrosive cleaners they were required to use. Most were Latinos and did not speak English. The federal court swiftly granted the injunction. The plants that contracted to PSSI in this case are owned by Turkey Valley Farms Plant in Marshall, Minnesota and JBS USA Plants in Grand Isle in Nebraska and Worthington, Minnesota. 
The department is looking into other plants, including a Tyson Foods plant in Sedalia, Missouri. You can find the rest of the in-depth article at jordanbarab.com slash confined space. This is Mary Ariel for Safety First. And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar. The American postal workers uh, are collecting new toys for Toys for Tots for Christmas. Um, and they're collecting through December 13th. You can drop off toys at the APWU Hall at 3824 East 16th Street in Kansas City. That's right across from that big post office building. Uh, the Unitarian Universalist Forum is on Pleas from Death Row, a Condemned Artist and the Fight for Life with Keith O'Connor, who's an attorney. This is Sunday, December 4th, 9.30 a.m., Unitarian Universalist Church, 4501 Walnut, Kansas City, Conover Hall. And for online, this is this is a hybrid thing. Uh, for online, go to allsoulskc.org and look for the forum. Missouri Jobs with Justice, end of the year party, Tuesday, December 7th at 6 o'clock p.m., all invited. It's at IBEW Local 124. You can RSVP at mojwj.org. The Alliance for Retired Americans is having a holiday brunch Thursday, December 8th, 10 a.m., Firefighters Hall, 6320 Manchester Avenue, Kansas City. There are several positions for organizers open. Starbucks Workers United has an organizer position open for the Kansas City area. The job is with the Chicago and Midwest Regional Joint Board of Workers United. For more information, Go to unionjobs.com and look for Workers United. Missouri Worker Center is hiring, and so is the Kansas City Federation of Teachers. This is for organizer jobs. Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft is, um, wants to reduce community access to public library books and other resources. A public comment period runs through Wednesday, December 14th, giving you a chance to speak up for libraries and for your right to read. You can contact the Secretary of State's office with your comments at comments at sos.mo.gov. For more information on this, call the Kansas City Public Library. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. We're going to have Jerry Wood of Teamsters Local 955 on, as well as his mother with stories from the 1970s of union women of women in non-traditional jobs with Jenny Agee, Jerry's mother, trucker and teamster organizer. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to our engineer, Stephen Hill, and stay tuned for the Thursday night special. It's Jasmine Jones with Next Step Forward. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI at gmail.com. 
Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and that's the place to be. Still got our pride Cause we are the world